Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, February 21st, and here's what's on the docket this week. There's a criminal trial underway in Boston that involves bribes, kickbacks, racketeering, and the superpotent opioid painkiller fentanyl. Boston Globe reporter John Saltzman joins us to talk about covering it. An influential medical group is recommending that all breast cancer patients be offered genetic testing. Dr. Laura Esserman, a breast cancer surgeon at the University of California at San Francisco, joins us to weigh in on the new guidelines. She also sings for us. And finally, we'll look ahead to Tuesday when seven biopharma executives will be called to defend their industry on Capitol Hill. We'll break down what you should expect at the high-profile hearing. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Read Out Loud is brought to you by Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a Genentech science podcast, where leading scientists unravel the complex science behind the microbiome, aging, and much more. Visit gene.com forward slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash podcast. And subscribe to Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar through your favorite podcast player. The scene inside a federal courthouse in Boston feels like it's been ripped straight from the script of a mobster film. So over the past several weeks, the jury seated for a criminal trial has heard explosive allegations about millions of dollars in illegal bribes and fraudulent kickbacks. The five defendants in the case are accused by the government of running a, quote, criminal enterprise from top to bottom, end quote. Government prosecutors say the fraud committed by the defendants is so pervasive that it violates the type of anti-racketeering statutes typically used to go after organized crime. But this case, playing out inside a Boston courtroom, does not involve the mafia. Instead, the five defendants are all executives and employees of a pharmaceutical company called Insys Therapeutics. Together, they are accused of using mobster-like tactics, including bribes and lap dances, to illegally sell a powerful fentanyl painkiller called Subsys. So Jonathan Saltzman is a reporter at the Boston Globe and a colleague of ours. He's been making regular visits to that courthouse since late January, and he is here right this second to tell us about it. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So John, to set the stage for listeners who might be unaware, tell us a little bit about Insys Therapeutics and its fentanyl painkiller. This is an FDA-approved product, correct? Yeah. Insys got this under-the-tongue fentanyl spray approved in early 2012, And it was designed and approved for uh, something known as breakthrough pain, which is pain that breaks through for cancer patients even when they're on other opioids. And John, selling Subsys has been a really profitable business for Insys, correct? Yeah, it was enormously profitable. In fact, the company started selling it in 2012. And in 2013, Insys was the best performing IPO. It went up something like 400% that year. But of course, according to the government, that revenue success was the result of criminality. The crux of the government's case against the INSYS executives is that they bribed doctors to prescribe subsys and often to patients who didn't need the painkiller. How did that process allegedly work? Right. And I think it's important to actually uh, note that this racketeering allegation, it really does look like a mobster trial. Right at the beginning of the trial, in the opening remarks by the prosecutor, he literally held up a board for the jury showing who was who in the the family of incest. And for a moment, I thought I was like covering a Gambino trial. 
But anyhow, what the prosecutors are saying is that the company identified doctors who'd be likely to prescribe this, and then they wooed them assiduously and through these outrageous tactics. Ultimately, they say eight doctors got over $1 million in payoffs to prescribe this drug, eight doctors across the entire country. One of the defendants in this case is the founder of Insys. He's a colorful guy. Tell us about him. Right. You mean John Kapoor. He is from India. He's in his mid-70s, and he has been in the uh, pharmaceutical industry as an entrepreneur for many years, kind of skirting the law. And he claims to have homed in on this drug because over a decade ago, his wife died of breast cancer. He hasn't testified, but supposedly he's told people that it was because she suffered such horrible pain that he wanted to develop a really fast acting painkiller so that nobody else would go through that. So, John, prosecutors and former INSYS employees who are now acting as whistleblowers have described the company as kind of this macho place where deceptive, high-pressure sales tactics were encouraged. There was a particularly jaw-dropping moment in the trial last week that involved two INSYS sales reps. They were wearing sunglasses and hoodies, and they were dancing in a rap video alongside a guy dressed in a subsis costume. Let's take a listen to a clip from the video that was shown in court. So, John, what is going on here? So I should actually point out that it was so well done that one of my colleagues emailed me and said, what's that song? And it turns out he really liked it. So, you know, now he's a big fan. But what's going on in that video is the sales team at Insys was under tremendous pressure to get people, this is what the prosecution witnesses say, to get doctors to prescribe this drug. And in fact, to prescribe it at high doses so that they would stay on the drug. And so several years ago, the hard driving sales head of the company got a couple sales representatives, young guys, to make this video. And it was played at a national sales meeting. And ultimately, the two young guys who were rapping about titration and stuff like that end up dancing and rapping with somebody who's dressed as a substance nebulizer. And it turns out it was this very hard-driving sales honcho who uh, the prosecution is saying is one of the, the key drivers of this strategy. So one of the government's witnesses in this case is a former CEO of the company. Can you tell us who is he and what has he said and, and what is his testimony doing in this case? Yeah, so I think you're talking about Michael Babich. He is the former CEO. He was actually on the stand when this video was played. And Babich was this young guy. Kapoor took him under his wing. He was going to be a finan- uh, kind of like an investment analyst for Kapoor, and he was doing that. And then Kapoor starts this venture, and Babich gets more and more responsibility until he's the CEO. And he acknowledges that there were, by his account, outrageous things going on in terms of payoffs, in terms of this video. And he ultimately, just shortly before the trial, pleaded guilty and cut a deal with the prosecution. And now he, along with the guy who was dressed in the nebulizer outfit, are two of the star witnesses. So the government is still presenting its case. But based on what you've heard in your reporting, 
What will the strategy be for the defendants, including Kapoor, against these charges? Well, one of the strategies, I think, is going to be that, at least for Kapoor, that his fingerprints aren't obviously on this. Kapoor didn't use email. So when there were uh, certain directions that were sent out by email, supposedly from Kapoor, they always went through one of his administrative assistants. So I'd be shocked if the defense doesn't argue that Kapoor uh, may not have been involved, even though he was supposedly at these weekly meetings when all of this was discussed. The other thing that the defense is arguing, and probably not without cause, is that subsis was, among these opioid drugs, a tiny, tiny player in the opioid crisis. And they're saying, and they argued this in openings, that the company's being tarred and feathered because of this horrific crisis that's going on. So they're going to say that this is government overreach. And that last point is interesting, John, because, you know, looking beyond kind of the salacious accusations and comparisons to organized crime that we've seen here, there is a larger story about a shift in how the government has treated makers of opioid-based drugs, correct? I mean, you know, the government has gone, it seems like it's gone after incest a lot harder than it has Purdue Pharma, for instance. Right. So Purdue Pharma, by virtually every count I've read, is if you're going to call somebody a culprit, the real culprit in this whole thing with OxyContin. But 10 years ago, Purdue Pharma pled guilty to a far lesser charge of misbranding. Case never went to trial. Rudy Giuliani uh, acted as an intermediary for the company and, you know, by most lights, got off very, very easily. Nobody was sitting in the dock like these guys are. So this trial is obviously still ongoing and you can read all about it and follow updates as they happen on the Boston Globe. John and his colleague Maria Kramer will be reporting on the whole INSYS saga until its conclusion. And John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. long-standing debate in the oncology community about which cancer patient should get genetic testing. Lately, doctors have been calling for more and more cancer patients to get checked for inherited mutations. Earlier this month, a team of researchers from Tulane University and the genetic testing company Invitae called for all men diagnosed with prostate cancer to get genetic testing. And last week, the American Society of Breast Surgeons recommended that all patients diagnosed with breast cancer, and yes, that's all breast cancer patients, get offered genetic testing. By contrast, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, that's an alliance of top cancer centers, recommends genetic testing just for cancer patients of certain ages and those who have a family history. These recommendations are a big deal. That's because even if only some fraction of doctors follow them, they could dramatically expand the number of cancer patients who get genetic testing. Currently, only about 38% of advanced cancer patients get some form of genetic testing. And that's according to an estimate from the genetic testing company, Foundation Medicine. But naturally, there are questions as well about whether more genetic testing will translate to better outcomes for patients. Joining us today to talk about the new recommendations is Dr. Laura Esserman. Laura is a breast cancer surgeon at the University of California, San Francisco. She has long challenged the conventional wisdom on whether aggressive intervention and screening in certain cases actually brings value to patients. 
Laura, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Laura, for starters, what did you think when you heard about the new recommendations from the American Society of Breast Surgeons calling for all cancer patients to be offered genetic testing? Do you agree with that recommendation? I think genetic testing should be considered for all patients. I don't know that we have the data at this moment to say that everyone benefits. I think it's important to take into account you know, people's family history and their age at which they're diagnosed. And certainly for young women, I think it's an important test that can be added that could really provide some important information. So the pushback you often hear is why not genetically screen patients if there's a chance that it could help them? But can there be potential downsides to genetic testing in some cases? There can, as always. More information is not always better, and I think it's important to put it into context. For example, if you were to find in someone who did not have cancer, someone in their late 60s, that they were a mutation carrier, that wouldn't be information that would necessarily lead to suggesting that someone have a bilateral mastectomy. Because if you've gotten to the age in your late 60s without having had a cancer, your risk is not 85%, it's actually considerably lower. One question you hear a lot is, does genetic testing actually determine the treatment decisions of doctors? And so I'm curious, in your own experience as a breast cancer surgeon, how often does a patient's genetic testing results actually influence the treatment path that you recommend? Right. So if I see someone who is young or has particular family history, you know, we are standardly recommending genetic testing already. If someone has a very low chance of being a mutation carrier, It's not something I would necessarily uh, recommend. I think the critical thing is not to overreact to the information and to make sure that we understand that the context of family history, having a mutation without family history is important. In the context of people who already have cancer, I think it actually helps them think about how to manage their local recurrence risk. I can give you an example. If I saw someone who had a very bad cancer, The most important thing is understanding how that particular cancer is responding, because the risk of that cancer is really going to have the biggest impact on that person's life. But if I know someone is having a great response, then their risk is much lower. Then, particularly if they're young, the most important risk for them might be a second cancer. And being able to avoid that because you know that they are at risk because of an inherited mutation is a critical piece of information, and you would never want to leave that on the table, especially in 2019. Do we have a way of paying for all these breast cancer or prostate cancer patients to get genetic testing today? Well, I think it's quite interesting. The range of costs for these tests you know, varies really considerably from a couple hundred dollars to several thousand dollars. And I think people should be aware that there are extremely high-quality tests that are available now that are really in the range of a couple hundred dollars. I think that's a real game changer. If you can get the same quality at a much lower price, that's what we should be pushing. We've been talking about genetic testing for already diagnosed cancer patients, but there's another category too, which is genetic screening of healthy people for prevention. So I wanna ask you about a huge study you're currently leading. It's called the Wisdom Study, and the goal is to enroll 100,000 women to try to understand how a personalized approach to breast cancer screening compares to annual mammograms. Women who enroll in the study are assigned to one of two groups. One group gets annual mammograms. The other group gets genetic sequencing to determine their risk level for breast cancer. 
the higher risk women get more aggressive screening, while lower risk women get less aggressive screening. So Laura, tell us about how that study is going. 20,000 women have actually signed up and consented to be part of the study. Our goal is to triple that at least. We know that breast cancer has many diseases. We wouldn't treat any breast cancer the same today. We would learn more about it. So it doesn't make sense that every woman is at risk for the exact same cancer and has the exact same risk. That's what a one-size-fits-all approach is about. This personalized approach gives you the opportunity to say, oh, maybe we can do something better and take all of the risk factors we've learned about, breast density, exposures, all the genetics, and not just the mutations, which are pretty rare, but these small changes in your in the genes that we call polygenic risk that can make a big difference. If this is now so cost-effective that it's about the price of a mammogram, we can use this combined information in a way to help tell people when to start, when to stop, how frequently to screen, what modality, and we can continue to learn. What a great thing. And this is a study about women for women. So we encourage everyone between 40 and 74 to participate. So Laura, you're famous for singing to your patients in the operating room. What is your favorite song? And can you sing it for us? <laughs> um, gosh, there's so many songs. I particularly like to pick songs that are meaningful to my patients because if it's meaningful to them, that's the most calming thing. I would say one of my favorite songs is uh, from Wicked, the last song in the show. It's called For Good. I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason, bringing something we must learn. Wow, that was beautiful. Wow, thank you. I would say that the reason I love that song is because every person you take care of has a story, and every story changes you, and hopefully it changes you for good. Laura, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. famous swearing-in photos of executives from the banking industry or the tobacco business, the ones with a bunch of powerful people standing in a line, looking sheepish with their right hands raised in the air? Those pictures, usually taken at congressional hearings, get trotted out whenever the topic is corporate malfeasance. They're basically photographic shorthand for big, bad industry being held accountable. And now the drug business is getting its chance to pose for exactly such a picture. Next week, executives from seven of the biggest companies in pharma will testify before the Senate Finance Committee. The topic, as you might have guessed, is drug pricing. And because skewering pharma is about the only bipartisan cause in Washington right now, it might get ugly for the drug industry. So let's step back. Damien, who's going to testify at this hearing? So the seven companies are Merck, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, AbbVie, Sanofi, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. What I think is interesting about that is there are obviously some usual suspects. Pfizer and Merck are among the most storied names in the history of the drug business, but there are a couple weird ones. Bristol-Myers Squibb, despite the name recognition it might have, is not the Bristol-Myers Squibb of 20 years ago. They don't have a consumer business. They're not like GlaxoSmithKline or Pfizer. Instead, they're more like a very large biotech company at this point. And similarly, AstraZeneca is a global pharma company, but they haven't really been in the spotlight with respect to drug pricing in the way that other pharmaceutical companies have. So, Damien, are there sort of usual suspects, you know, within biotech or pharma that are not on that list? 
Yeah, I think it's odd that Novartis, which is, uh, depending on how you measure it, the largest pharma company in the world, was not called to testify. And similarly, Eli Lilly, which, like Pfizer and Merck, is a household name and markets on insulin, which, as we know, the price of insulin has been a political issue uh, for quite some time. Eli Lilly wasn't summoned either. And then the thing that's kind of surreal, at least for me, is that Pfizer will testify and their CEO, Albert Bourla, will represent the company. But what that means is that Ian Reid, the longtime Pfizer CEO who recently stepped down, won't be there. And Ian Reid has been such a fixture in conversations like this. He is a pretty adept spokesman for pharma. He is a very pugnacious arguer who has stood up to parliament. He stood up to Donald Trump. The fact that he won't be there, it just feels kind of surreal for me. I almost feel like they should get a hologram of him like Tupac at Coachella or something like just I don't know. It's odd. So, Damien, what's on your bingo board for Tuesday? I think we're going to see a lot of conciliatory language from these CEOs. I don't think that this will be a knockdown, dragout fight. Sanofi has kind of signaled that they will acknowledge the issues with drug pricing and how it's affected patients. They have promised, basically, that they won't just throw other members of the supply chain under the bus and and pretend that pharma has not committed sins in the past. What's interesting, though, is the mix of personalities among those seven people called to testify is curious. For example, Pascal Sorio, the CEO of AstraZeneca, can be combative. He's punchy. He's quite literally punchy. He often talks about the many fistfights he got into growing up. Whereas on the other end, Kenneth Fraser, the CEO of Merck, is, you know, pharma's favorite son. He's sort of this anointed figurehead of the industry who is looked up to and and who, you know, has earned his reputation as being kind of a straight shooter. And so we might not see a united front among these seven people. And that's something that I would look out for come Tuesday. So, Damien, I think we anyone who's watched these kinds of hearings know that uh, there's a lot of theatrics involved with these things. Do you feel like at the end of this hearing that there's going to be any substantive change? I doubt it, both because all of the executives involved will be coached and are likely not to go off script. And furthermore, as, as you said, we, we've seen these hearings before, and it's often basically like a, like a Harlem Globetrotters match. We just watch senators dunk on whoever the baddie is who's there. And I think that's why you know, when we were talking about this, we put it in the context of those famous photos of executives from, from years past, because it becomes a theatrical matter. So whether this will influence policy, I think is unlikely. But I do think that the tone of the hearing and the fact that pharma is the big bad industry of the day, that may have influence on the conversation over the next year uh, when it comes to Congress talking about this issue. If you want more on this topic, you can tune into a webinar that's being hosted by two of STAT's Washington correspondents, that's Lev Fasher and Nicholas Florco. That's happening the day after the hearing on Wednesday, February 27th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, which pharma CEO you think would make the best hologram. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And we really do appreciate the feedback. So thank you. And if you like what we do, you can leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. And stay tuned for a special episode tomorrow on a newly public sealed deposition that shows how Purdue's Dr. Richard Sackler embraced the plan to conceal OxyContin's strength from doctors.